From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. I love talking about tech and I love talking about things that progress in the education sector. Back to school for a lot of us um, families, we start to see our kids going back to grade school, high school, maybe even university or college. And one of the things that's starting to emerge right now is we're starting to see artificial intelligence and a skills gap here in Canada. Did you know that workers with AI skills can actually earn $100,000 more per year than the average folks? So how can adults build AI skills without spending years in college or university. To talk a little bit more about this and education as a whole, I'm kind enough to be joined by Coral Kennett, Head of Education Canada for Amazon Web Services. Coral, good afternoon. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm thrilled that you're here because I think that this is a great conversation starter. So I think of back in the three days, it was reading, writing, and arithmetic. And I know in 2023, obviously, we're starting to hope that our kids can get educated in different things artificial intelligence still new to some of us but can you walk through maybe even through just the cold notes of why this might be a great time to get your kids involved in ai absolutely and ai is everywhere right now it's uh, all over the news it's everything that uh, we're talking about and really a lot of people have been using ai more than maybe they even think they were um, if you think about Amazon.ca, for example, when we're suggesting things to you, that's AI working in the background, or on, if you're on Netflix and um, it's suggesting different shows that you might be interested in. So you people are a bit more familiar th- with this than I, I think maybe even they think that they are. And it's really something that's accessible for everyone. Uh, really, AI skills can be for any age, any technology um, level. And we've got lots and lots of programs that can get you started on this uh, really for anyone. I think that's one of the things that I'm I'm a little hesitant to just assume that the education here in British Columbia is going to add that to their general curriculum. But maybe it's something as a parent that I can proactively find a course or something offline where maybe my kids can learn this on the side so that they're not missing out. And all of a sudden it takes five, 10 years for the education system here in British Columbia to get up to speed. Instead, maybe I can proactively start to put my kids into these programs. Absolutely, you can. And I do the same with my kids. And one of the key things is finding really fun ways to incorporate AI into their education. So some of the programs that we have that can do this are things like AWS Deep Composer, which allows people to go and create music um, using generative AI techniques. Um, You can just go in there with a virtual keyboard and start to create music using Gen AI. Um, We have other programs such as our AWS Cloud Quest, which is a 3D game that allows you to learn cloud skills and AI skills as you're, you know, um, making friends and getting pets and solving puzzles and doing it in a really, really fun way. And these are all free programs that are available for anyone. I think one of the preconceived notions, well, there's actually a few that I've got here, is one that using AI is cheating and that you're actually not utilizing your brain for problem-solving skills, that you're letting something technical do it for you. And then the other one is the fear of privacy and how much do we let AI seep into our family and into our kids' mindset and psyche. Is there anything that you can do to maybe um, push away some of those thought processes? And AI is really a tool. So it's how you use it. Um, so it's, it's really being able to have 
the right um, prompts and the right use cases that you're going to bring to this tool and, and how you're going to use it. Um, someone gave me the analogy that it was sort of like, you know, when the first calculators came out, that was a tool that was used, but you still had to have the right inputs to be able to use that tool effectively. Um, and there are a lot of ways that we can use these tools uh, to learn and to figure out what those use cases are going to be for us in our everyday lives and in our, our careers and our jobs and, and how we go forward um, by using some of these uh, programs that we have and, and really being able to start to experiment them with them and, and figure out, you know, what are the use cases that are going to be the most relevant for you. And, and final question that I have for you, Coral, is the fact that you can probably go to your employer at this point and say, listen, I'd like to take a course in AI. I'd like to better myself and further my skills. Would you be willing to help me with that and offset some of the cost? I think that's a fair ask now of your employer. Um, absolutely. And we're seeing a lot of employers invest in technology training across the board, but particularly in AI training. So some of the free programs I was talking about are available at uh, skillbuilder.aws on our website. But there are also a lot of programs that we are building in collaboration with a lot of the institutions here in British Columbia. We have a lot of colleges and universities that are launching these cloud programs right now. So you can absolutely get in touch with them. They have things that can be done through micro-credentialing, through um, longer courses. There's just so many different options depending on the time. Um, and your level of interest and, and the funding that you have. But we're absolutely seeing employers invest in these really, really valuable skills. It's a great conversation, Coral. Let's do this again. And thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. You know, it was more than two years ago since a man went on a stabbing spree in North Vancouver, killing one woman, injuring several more. Uh, he has since been sentenced to life in prison. No chance for parole for 15 years. And I think that's what has some people raising their eyebrows this afternoon. It was actually a recommendation by both the Crown and the defense. This happening a little bit earlier today. We broke into our news at about 11 o'clock with this update. To talk a little bit more about this and what that means, let's be joined here by Sarah Lehman. Uh, she's a lawyer with Sarah Lehman Law group. Uh, Sarah, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, I think there's a lot of people that are okay, more than okay with life in prison, but I think there's some people scratching their head at the fact that there is uh, just 15 years, maybe even a less uh, less than 15 when it comes to no chance for parole, but he could be before the parole board uh, just over a decade from now. I know that was a recommendation from both the defense and the crown, but is that uh, a little too thin or is that standard? Well, at sentencing, the judge would have taken a number of different factors into account. And I think that one of the very significantly mitigating factors in this case would have been the offender's entry of his early guilty plea, which avoided a very, very lengthy trial, as well as his expression of remorse. Uh, I understand that uh, the offender did read in what was quite a heartfelt statement to the court uh, saying that, you know, he is very, very deeply sorry for his actions and really providing no explanation for them, but for the fact that he was using uh, some very serious drugs at the time uh, that the offense was committed. Um, so there, there is always a very individualized process when it comes to sentencing, but I expect that those two factors would have been very significant in terms of the mitigating factors that the judge considered in acceding to this joint submission from both counsel, who are very experienced counsel, um, and and sought uh, 15 years uh, parole here in this case. 
One of the challenges is the fact that there is this one page that hasn't been written, and that is why he did what he did. I mean, there's obviously some drug use there, some substance abuse. Um, but for the family, obviously, a 20-year-old woman died in this instance, and six other individuals had their life altered as well. Um, it, do you feel like that kind of leaves this almost feeling like it's uh, it's unfinished business and the fact that we really don't get the, the final page written with regards to this story? Yeah, I mean, this is just the tragic reality of so many uh, stories like these. Um, we always want answers. We want an explanation. But in this case, you know, there just simply isn't one, but for, of course, the um, detrimental effects of, of drug use on a person's um, behavior. Uh, and so I think that, unfortunately, that's that's where we're left. And there's not going to be really any answers beyond that, I don't think. Sarah, can you walk us through maybe a little bit of the process when it comes to the parole board? I mean, obviously, we look at the number 15, and that's where sometimes you'll get a bit of the uprise. But let's talk about what it's like. Let's say we've gone the 15 years, and this gentleman now is eligible for parole. Can you walk our listeners through what that process looks like? Sure. And I think it's very important to highlight the fact that this doesn't mean that this individual is going to be released after serving 15 years of his life sentence. What it means is that he's eligible to be considered for parole. Um, when a person obtains parole, they're not just released into the community without conditions to just live their life as they see fit and free, but rather they would continue to be monitored and supervised in the community if parole was ultimately granted. Now, the uh, discretion to grant parole lies with the Parole Board of Canada, uh, they are a group of individuals who are highly trained to consider the various competing uh, issues uh, and factors uh, in determining whether or not parole is appropriate in any individual case. Um, it's also very important to note that victims and victims' families are able to participate and be actively consulted throughout the parole process. So that is something to highlight as well, because it's not as though you know they'll have no say uh, after today, um, it is something that if they wish to participate in the future, uh, it, the door is open for them to do so. So it is a very um, thorough process, and it's something that considers a wide variety of factors. It's not just something that's automatically granted or granted on a whim. But I would imagine, Sarah, and, and I'm not going to try to throw too much dirt on this, though, that just means that the mm -hmm. families have to live through this every, you know, periodically throughout the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. And the fact that maybe he doesn't get granted at the 15 mark, but maybe he's up for parole again at 20, 25, 30, whatever those numbers are, that they've then got to truck down to the courts again and make their plea and make their case to keep him incarcerated. Now, it's important to note that that would be a voluntary participation in the process. So they're not required to provide uh, their insight. Um, it is something that people decide to do. Uh, and it, of course, re-traumatization is a, a very important factor uh, that weighs uh, sometimes in people's considerations about whether or not they do want to participate. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to note as well is that this isn't something that would require, say, courtroom testimony. They have to go to court and sit in front of a judge and, or a jury and provide testimony. Um, it is a relatively confidential process in some ways, um, but it, it is a very formal process. And, and there are many uh, different safeguards in place to make sure that the most comprehensive and thorough information is before uh, that board, before they make any decisions. 
It's great insight, and I really appreciate you helping me paint a picture for the listeners today and, and even helping me out just understand what this looks like because you see the sentence, you see the number, you say, oh my gosh, we're too lenient, but I really appreciate you fleshing that out and just making sure that we understand the true magnitude of the decision that came down from the courts today. Sarah, thank you for this. I do appreciate it, and hopefully we'll talk again. Thank you so much for having me. Take thank care. You. Well, the premier of this fine province sat down at the desk and started penning letters. He wanted to make sure that the Bank of Canada didn't increase interest rates any further. And that was the rumor that was going about that it might happen as early as next week. And that would be a big deal. Now, I don't know if you're for him doing that or against him doing it. But again, BC Premier David Eby uh, writing Justin Trudeau, the Bank of Canada, saying, guys, we've got to stop. We have to allow people to build homes and build housing. And we just can't keep going with these half points, these quarter points. As you heard the newscast, 10 times in under two years have we seen that number go higher and higher and higher. To talk a little bit more about this, mortgage expert with Dominion Lending Centers and also host of the Mortgage Show right here on CKNW, Angela Calla, kind enough to join us. Angela, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, let's talk about this. Uh, a BC Premier stepping forward, trying to get the feds to take the foot off the gas pedal. What is he trying to accomplish here? Well, we certainly need to allow the increases that we've had to take place in the market. And, you know, obviously, if you're trying to get into the market right now, you are very aware of your buying power being lesser than it was for people a couple of years ago. And if you are an existing mortgage holder, you know how much payment shock you're potentially facing. Some people's mortgage payments are doubling or even tripling. And 20% of mortgages are up for renewal next year and then 2025 will have a staggering half a million uh, mortgages up for renewal due to all the purchases that happened in 2020 and 2021 so allowing a little bit of time for this to do the job that's intended is certainly what all of us are, are looking for well, I am of that 20% that is up for it next year, and I'm just cringing thinking of just how much my life is going to change. Can we maybe put this into perspective? When you say doubling and tripling, there's a lot of people that are going to be looking around thinking, how am I able to do this? Does this mean that we could see sales? Does this mean that we're going to see people that are going to be um, looking for loans? I mean, what are some of the immediate maybe signs that you'll see as early as next year? Well, here's what we know. People that are having rental properties are no longer cash flowing because they had a mortgage at 2% and now the rate is five and a half. They can't increase their rents to, uh, they can't increase the rent payments on the tenants to be able to cover that. So now they're selling that. But if they're selling that home, we have new immigrants coming into the country that are absorbing that, right? So it's not helping the people who are going to rent because now they're going to rent. And even if you're going to rent and you don't own, your payment's doubling because you're going into what rates are right now. But fixed interest rates are also based on the bond market. And over the last 72 days, interest rates have increased 1.24%, which is an average of 0.17 each each day. So with that in mind, I mean, people that, you know, were paying $2,500 on a mortgage payment are now going to be paying $3,500 or $4,000. But... If you do own a home, you need to rest assured that you do have options in Canada. You have so many options. First and foremost, if you're thinking about how much your payments are going to increase and you're incredibly stressed about it, know that you can do a few things. You can extend your amortization. 
You can switch lenders for a better interest rate. You can modify, modify the payment frequency, and you can also get rid of debt outside your mortgage if you have home equity to improve your overall cash flow. So you do have options. And, uh, you know, we heard this in the update as well, that the Bank of Canada has a singular mandate, which is simply inflation and trying to acknowledge that. So David Eby sends these letters to the Bank of Canada, whether they listen or not, that remains to be seen. Justin Trudeau is obviously going to co- copy this letter. In the event that the Bank of Canada does go ahead with this, and, and I'm not 100% sure that they will, is there maybe something else that the government can do to maybe offset at least some of the sting that's coming with this? I mean, I, I, maybe this isn't either of our portfolios here to speak on, but could we do something like remove the carbon tax to offset something along these natures? Like, is there any way that we could take out of one pocket to help with the other one? Well, sometimes that's like a big, I'll, I'll use the words of Benjamin Tall, that's like a big game of whack-a-mole because, you know, they're, they're doing things and then they're giving us a grocery rebate, but then how are they going to pay for that? Well, they're going to raise taxes, right? So, I mean, we're, we, the problem on why this happened is we kept rates too low for too long. So it's because of that, that we're in this situation. And then we gave out too much money for too long. And so now it's hard to get those people that were, that were getting, um, some people were getting, it's easier for them to stay home than it was to go back to work. So the entry level jobs have difficult times filling roles because those people just aren't going to get off their couch for less than a living, you know, less than what they, they could when they were on assistance. So it's a big game of whack-a-mole that needs a really fundamental shift. And, um, you know, it's a delicate balance that they have to maintain. And I think that um, taking the steps in the right direction, of course, would be putting a pause on this. But don't forget, we could pause right now, but there still is another hike potentially in the chamber left because we have October 25th and December 6th. So if we do see a pause right now, the economic climate will have a lot to uh, a lot of developing news based on how things continue to go in October and December. But, you know, sadly, uh, people are suffering, businesses are suffering. There's no one that's immune to this. Yeah, it, it seems like there are darker days ahead, unfortunately. And uh, that's why you coming on to this show every once in a while helps us just at least make sense of it all. Angela, thank you for your time today. I really do appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Well, I know that this is always going to be a polarizing topic. Every time I see it on my list of things to talk about over the course of the three hours, whenever I'm filling in, I just know that when we talk about COVID-19 and the vaccination campaigns, that there are going to be some that are like no chance and there are going to be some that are like, all right, I'm ready to go. Where do I roll up my sleeve? The messaging is starting to come out a little bit uh, faster than maybe it has over the course of the summer because there's this new variant, this BA 2.86 variant that contains more than 30 mutations of the virus. It was actually discovered in BC's Fraser Health region recently. So to talk about the ramped up messaging and to talk about the pros and cons of this, Jason Tetro, microbiologist with specialties in studying emerging pathogens, kind enough to join us this afternoon. Jason, good afternoon. Well, good afternoon. Well, let's talk about this because obviously mm-hmm. before we get into the polarization of the messaging, let's talk about the campaign as a whole and the timing of it. Obviously, kids getting ready to go back to school, we're getting ready to turn to fall. Um, can you explain a little bit more about this variant and why this campaign is key? Right. So what has happened is that we've been looking at various different types of what we call variants of uh 
SARS-CoV-2, the, the COVID-19 virus. And what's happened is that there have been a number of different sort of lineages, you know, like a family tree. Well, you can do the same type of family tree with a virus. And for the last little while, uh, we've been seeing only one branch of that particular virus's family. And that essentially was uh, the BA2, the BA5. And then after that, we went into the XBB and we went down that path. And that was really the tree we were following. And that's essentially where we were going to go with the vaccine. Well, the BA2.86 is kind of like the cousin that you never really knew you had. <laughs> It's, Good it's way still to describe COVID, it. it's still Omicron, but it has different types of mutations. Now, we've seen the mutations before. It's just we haven't seen them in the lineages that we've been encountering lately. So when they say it has over 30 different types of mutations, well, yeah, if you compare it to the ones that we've been talking about, yes. And if you compare it back to the old ancestor from way back in 2019, 2020, yeah, you're going to have a lot of differences. So when you hear that number, yeah, it sounds a little bit scary, but all it's saying is that the virus itself has figured out a way to be able to spread in the human population, even though many people have either been infected and recovered or have been vaccinated. How prepared are we as a province as we head into the fall when it comes to immunity from this virus? It's not bad. Um, the thing that happens, though, is when you look at sort of the wastewater numbers, it gives you perspective as to how much this particular virus or strain or variant would be, you know, circulating in the population. It doesn't tell you how many people are infected. It just gives you an idea of how much of it is in the community. And over the last little while, what's been happening is that the rises and falls in the wastewater have been showing that the immunity of the people of Vancouver is getting better and better and better. Now, remember, when we were looking at COVID at its absolute worst, we had about 6% of the population infected. And that turned into maybe 30% in 2021, and then maybe 60% by 2022. So there's still a lot of people out there who either don't have any kind of immunity or have immunocompromised states so that their immunity is very weak. That's where, of course, the boosters come in and that type of thing. But overall, we're starting to see a much better immune profile in the population. But that doesn't mean that you can stop being really diligent or vigilant about this virus because there are so many people out there, especially in intergenerational households, that don't have immunity and could still end up getting pretty sick. Okay, I'm going to give you both sides of the equation because I know that we have listeners who are vaccinated and we have listeners who are not vaccinated. So I want to talk yeah. about this from two different perspectives here. The first sure. one is, okay, I've taken my early vaccinations, but I'm getting to the point where it's like, ah, I, I feel good where I am. Maybe I don't need my booster for this coming fall. Let's look at it from that mm -hmm. angle first. Is that wise to do or should you keep up with your shots? Well, again, if you're seeing the exact same thing that you've had five times in a row, Eh, it, I mean, it's going to give you a little bit of protection, uh, but it's not going to really help more than just to bump up those uh, antibodies to be able to help you. Now, if it's something completely different, and this is where we got into the 1-2 booster, and then the 4-5 booster, and then the XBB booster... 
they want to be getting it because what's happening is that it's helping to train your immune system against the already circulating cousins that we apparently didn't know about. And as a result of that, what it's going to do is it's going to give you a broader level of protection and it's going to help because even if you do become exposed to this virus, the likelihood is that you're going to have either no symptoms or very few symptoms. So really what you want to do now is look at what kind, what is the name of the booster to give you perspective as to whether or not you really should be taking it. And the other half of the equation to those who aren't taking any boosters or any vaccinations mm-hmm. at all, um, I, I feel like just by listening to the messaging here that this doesn't seem to be a fatal um, you know, mutation is this one where it's like, you know what, screw it, I'm not going to do it because this isn't anything more than the cold? I know from a science perspective, that's maybe not what mm-hmm. you want to hear. But to those who have decided to just stay true to themselves, what would you say to them? Well, I mean, it's the same thing I say to the 60% of the population that don't get the flu shot every year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it is a personal decision and you can decide not to get it. But what you also have to understand is that when you do get this virus, okay, 15, 10 to 15% of the population who get it are going to have some kind of secondary effects that are going to be longer term. And this isn't necessarily long COVID. It could just be you're really exhausted for like three months. Um, Remember, when you get flu, you're knocked down for three weeks. When you get rhinovirus, you're knocked down for two days. This is longer than the flu, and it's much worse than rhinovirus. So that's the type of thing that we're trying to get across. And if you can get that booster shot, then it's going to help. What I'm also concerned about is the fact that we're seeing many people in the short term, the first six weeks after infection, having problems, whether it be cardiovascular, whether it be with um, the mental state. And, And that's where we're starting to sort of say, okay, well, maybe you don't want to have to go through that. And of course, you know, the fact that you can't taste anything and you can't smell anything, that's still going around as well. So the reality is, is if you choose not to get vaccinated, I just want you to be aware of what the consequences could be should you be exposed with a high enough level of the virus to cause you illness. Fair enough. All we can do is provide the information and let people make their decisions from there. Jason, well, thank exactly. you. Thank you for this. I really appreciate it. I wish you had more time to talk about it because I feel like the, you're just a wealth of information. So how about this? <laughs> Why don't you just promise that you come back and we'll talk about this more? Absolutely. Well, just moments ago, we threw to a press conference out in Richmond at one of their fine schools where Premier David Eby stepped to the podium and talked about the fact that each child in this province will receive $145, well, the family will, $145 per month to help with childcare. The question is, is that enough or is that simply a step in the right direction to talk about this? Sharon Gregson, who's an advocate for the $10 per day childcare plan, kind enough to join us. Sharon, good afternoon. Hello. Well, let's talk about this. I think any time that money goes back into a taxpayer pocket, it's a good thing. But as a guy that's got two kids, I know 145 would not cover all of my costs. But what do you make of the announcement today? Well, we knew this announcement was coming, so it's not a surprise. It's part of the province's overall work to reduce fees for licensed childcare. So let's be clear, though, this isn't a check in the mail that's going to parents. This is a fee reduction 
that happens when you pay your fees each month to your childcare provider. Instead of, for example, paying uh, $400, you'll pay $145 less. So your fees will be reduced right at the source where you pay for them. Uh, it is a savings regardless, whether it's a check in the mail or at least it's a reduced uh, bill when you get the, the receipt that you got to pay for. But I know you've been an advocate for the $10 per day childcare plan. Does this get into the ballpark of what you're trying to accomplish? It's a step towards it. Um, it is a halfway measure. Um, and it's it in line with the fee reductions that are happening for the other age groups. So if you've got an infant or a toddler, you're seeing a savings of $900 a month. If you've got a three to five-year-old, you're seeing a savings of 500 plus a month. So this 145 for school-age childcare is reflective of the fact that overall school-age fees are less. Does it pay probably even half of your school-age fees? Probably not. The school-age fee is typically between four and five hundred dollars a month now, so it's a help, but it's not. It's certainly not getting down to ten dollars a day, which would be two hundred bucks a month. Um, and in fact, we suggest that part-time care should only be seven dollars a day. So it's getting there, but it's not. It's not quite ten a day. You know, uh, one of the things that I've, in, in talking with some of my, you know, friends that have kids that are much younger than my children, one of the challenges that they're facing are waiting lists and just the uh, inability to find childcare as a whole. And now they're looking at secondary ways, like maybe they put them into the boys and girls clubs, you know, for those few hours, not optimal situation, but at least it's a, a stopgap until they can finally get to the top of that list. How bad is it out there for families? How many people are really struggling just to find any kind of childcare? Well, you nailed it. That is the number one issue right now. So these affordability measures for families are great if you're one of the lucky 25% of families in the province that can access licensed childcare. But for everybody else, um, the affordability piece doesn't really matter if you can't even get a space. So we're suggesting that every elementary school in the province should be able to accommodate all the kids in that school who need before and after school care. We should immediately be able to solve the school-age childcare problem with our publicly funded school facilities that we already have. And we need a massive expansion of custom-designed modular buildings, for example, Hmm. to increase the number of programs for zero to five-year-olds. So to do that, we have to invest in the educators so that we've got people to work in all these new programs. So we're still pushing hard for increased um, investments and new policies for the childcare sector because that's the only way that's going to support the BC economy. You know, it's such a smart idea. I'm surprised that it's not already already in place, Sharon. And the fact that you've got the facility and if you can get the staffing, you can flip that around and have your kids at least on a premises that they feel comfortable with and your parents are aware where your kid is and things of that nature. How far are we from making that a reality? Well, we shouldn't be very far at all. Um, the, there's capital funds available for any small changes that might be needed um, to school spaces, whether it's classrooms or resource spaces. Um, you know, you're quite right. These are facilities that are already designed for school-age kids, and so there's no reason why we couldn't extend that to before and after school care. And all we need is the Premier and, and Minister Singh to actually give school districts a mandate to expand 
with the, the funds that they need to make that happen. Um, there's lots of support for this idea from from parents, from school districts, from, you know, from labour unions. So um, this could happen very quickly and be a, a huge win for, for government and for families. So we're waiting for that to happen. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense to me, and I'm sorry that I'm so obtuse to this, that it only took me to today in this conversation to realize the logic behind that, because the reality is, is even if you were to put them in a certain part of the school, because you don't want your kid to be in a classroom for 10 to 12 hours, but if you can give them a fresh area of that school to sit down and work with some aftercare school providers who maybe can you know run some games or at least keep them busy, maybe even do some homework while you're there, heaven forbid, um, that this would be a really smart idea. Sharon, thank you for shining light on this today. I, I do appreciate it. And I appreciate the realistic uh, assessment that, yeah, $145 per month is great, but there's still work to be done. Thank you for the conversation today, Sharon. My pleasure. Take care. Rob Fain for Jill. Good afternoon. Uh, Just minutes ago, BC auditor coming out saying that there was a $704 million surplus in our province for 2022-2023. So, yeah, let's get some of that money flowing around. Uh, they had an earlier forecast that said we were going to be in a $5.5 billion deficit. That is a very big curvature. So we'll talk about that before the show is done. But between now and us bringing out the calculators and the abacuses, let's talk a little football, shall we? Uh, the biggest feared man in Pacific Lutheran football history, kind enough to join us here, SFL football, SFU football great Julio Caravetta. Julio, good afternoon. That was a good pull. I, that was a very good poll. Wow, that's that's bringing back a lot of memories there, Rob. Oh, man. Doing, what was it? The fall of 1989, you torched them for four touchdowns at over 300 <laughs> yards, and they were never the same since. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Well, those Thank were you. the those were the memories when SFU was yeah. a bit of a powerhouse. Chris Beaton had things rolling. You were punting. You were throwing touchdowns, and, and things have sure changed. We talked about SFU football's demise over the past couple of months, but as everybody's getting ready for school, UBC's talking about their program, and everybody's talking about football, mm-hmm. what ended up happening with SFU football? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's uh, it has been a real, real tragedy. Uh, you know what happened at, at the end of March, beginning of April, there when the school decided to shut the program down, and um, you know, I think all, you know, I mean, the whole entire football community was was devastated by the news, and and I think for all of us that have been involved in that, I think one of the things that's very, very frustrating about it was that it, it's something that didn't need to happen at that particular time. Um, you know, SFU had a schedule. Um, they were going to be playing in the Lone Star Conference uh, in, in 2023. And, um, you know, beyond that, there were some question marks. But I, I think what's really frustrating is that there was such a lack of communication. And, you know, I, I know that the football community had had it heard that, hey, potentially at the end of this season, you know, we might have to we may have to, you know, do things differently or, or the program may, may, may fail. And I think that, you know, I mean, that would have rallied everybody behind you know, behind the program and, and trying to find solutions that could have kept it going. But unfortunately, that's not the way it happened. Um, you know, they, they shut the program down and, uh, you know, it really made a lot of us really, you know, really sick because, you know, you talk about the Pacific Lutheran and, and, and those memories. Those memories are, are something that I, I still cherish to this very day. You know, my, my friends, my best friends that I have are because, of my, you know, my involvement in that program. Um, and so I know what it did for me. It changed my life. And so for that opportunity to have been snatched away from those athletes, is, it's, it's tough to 
um, it's tough to, you know, rationalize it, you know, when, when it didn't need to happen the way it did. So uh, I know that a lot of us or anybody that's involved with the program and football around the community is waiting for Bob Copeland's uh, report to the university about the viability of the program. And I know that comes out in the middle of September. So we're all waiting for that to happen. So to see what, what Simon Fraser does next and, um, hopefully they, they, you know, they do the right thing and reinstate the program and, and, and let's get this thing started again and let's, let's do it the right way. You know, for some of our listeners, obviously this has been a program that's dipped its toes south of the border. They were long part of the NAIA and then they spent the last mm-hmm. several years in the NCAA. I don't think there's any shame, Julio, in going back to U Sports or whatever they're going to be calling yeah. the Canadian program. Is that something that uh, yes. if this does get reinstated, does that seem like a logical choice to you? Yeah. I think that's a very logical choice. Now, I don't know what, what Bob's recommendation is, but, you know, from the outside looking in and from the people that I've talked to, I think that's a very viable, very viable choice. Um, uh, you know, I, that that to me is something that probably should have, you know, been ha- that should have happened prior to all this. I think that's, again, the frustration was, you know, that I don't really think that there was a thorough enough examination into SFU moving into, U sports. It was just more of a token. Yeah, no, it's going to be really complicated. Uh, we're we're not going to do it. Um, so I think that's the hope here is that you know, and I'm and I'm thankful that the university and Joy Johnson did do this. Is that they, you know, I mean, they went out and and hired the advisor, or special a football advisor, to really take a look at what is the best route for this university. Like you know, take a deep dive into it. Is is it U sports? Is it the NAIA? Whatever it is, um, you know there can be a very successful route forward um, in football. And so uh, that's, that's our hope. And, and I know that a lot of us are waiting with bated breath here with, with this report about to come out and, and, and see what the recommendation and see what the university is going to do. And very quickly, Julio, thank you for the insight here. What did the kids who are on that program doing this yeah. year? Are they just, yeah, are they just students for yeah, the year? That, yeah, that's the unfortunate part. You know I mean? Like, you know, the way that they did this, you know, they, they canceled that program after spring ball, right? And, and if anybody knows anything about football, right, that's the worst possible time to have done that because, you know, they, these kids needed an opportunity to, to find another home. And a lot, some did, but a lot did not. And so, you know, you have a lot of kids that probably are going to take the year off and, and, and wait. There are some kids that are playing junior football. There are some kids that you know, because financially they're not able to afford to, to stay in school here and have had to go home. You know what I mean, Rob? That's the thing that really, you know, I think to myself, like when this all went down, I thought to myself, hey, I could see myself in that, in that room and having someone come in and say, hey, by the way, we're canceling the program. Like I was from Toronto. I did, I, you know, I moved everything out here. Um, and all of a sudden to have that taken away from me, I would have been like, what am I going to do now? Like mm. your whole career is like, feels like it's going to go right down the toilet. Some of these kids that have aspirations of playing professionally, you know what I mean? It, it's completely ruined them and, and trying to find another place to play because it's not just about finding another place to play. It's also finding the right place to play because of finance, financial requirements, family requirements, all those things come into play. So it's just, um, it was, it's just really, really unfortunate, but I know that there's still a lot of kids out there that are at the school that are enrolled, that are going to be there and are hoping that this thing gets decided in the middle of December, or excuse me, in the middle of September. We're going to move forward. We're going to reinstate the program and then get the ball rolling so that uh, they can be ready for, for, for 2024. 
Well, Julio, I wish you all the luck with the BC Lions this year. I have loved you and the Moj for so many years now, and I just feel like you guys might have a little lightning in a bottle. So keep doing yes. big things, and thank you for making time for me today, Tafel. I appreciate it's it. Always a, it's always a pleasure, Rob. I, I, you know, I, I love you as well. I love hearing you on the radio. So, um, yeah, it's great to talk to you, my friend. We'll do it again. Thank you. Yeah, cheers. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.